Hey, how goes it? Ken Bozak here to talk about Bitcoin and Bitcoin accessories. And today we're streaming with strangers. Our guest, uh, I guess, hails from Asia, it appears. It's, um, it's Makoto uh, Takamiya from Sora.org. Sorry if I butchered that name, dude. Correct me. Introduce yourself. Let everybody know who you are, maybe a little bit about where you came from and how you got into cryptocurrencies. Okay, sure. Uh, so my name is Makoto Takemiya. I'm the co-CEO and co-founder of Sorimitsu. So Sorimitsu is a Japanese, I would say, boutique uh, fintech company that is here in Tokyo. Uh, it's about 11 p.m. here in Tokyo right now. Oh, it's um, uh, 9 a.m. here in uh, New Jersey. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the weather here is slightly better. There's no snow outside. Um, yeah, rub it in. Go ahead. <laughs> we don't have Godzilla, so I win. Whatever. But um, yeah, today actually was a national holiday. It's Japan's uh, 2,679th birthday. So um, happy birthday, Japan! Yeah, the the founder. So today was a national holiday. Um, but uh, just a little bit about um, what we're doing. Uh, so I'm here tonight to talk a little bit about a project called Sora. But before I talk about that, <clears throat> I'll give just a brief introduction. So uh, I don't really look Japanese. Um, I, uh, I moved to Japan 11 years ago, and I originally worked at NEC uh, to do machine learning uh, for my master's thesis. And then after I graduated, I liked it so much that so I, I moved to Japan and worked at a, uh, a neuroscience research lab called ATR in Kyoto. And I liked Japan so much that I uh, <laughs> actually changed my name and became a citizen uh, four years ago. So that's kind of congrats, why, man. That is awesome. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I I got into blockchain, uh, well, through Bitcoin, the gateway drug, um, <laughs> back in 2013, uh, in, in January, I guess. Um, and uh, at that time, Bitcoin was around like 20 or $30 at the beginning. And then uh, I was here in Japan, so it's pretty easy to buy on Mount Gox. And <laughs> Uh, did some trading. I wrote a bot in, in Python to, to do some Bitcoin trading. Um, that didn't turn out so well. Yeah, um, <laughs> but how was that process, man? That must have been a pretty cool experience. <coughs> it's interesting. Um, it's, then as, of, as it is now, it's really hard to predict the price and uh, it's, it's hard to understand what the fundamentals are. Um, I, I don't think anyone can explain that. Uh, yeah. In, in um, but in, anyway, to make uh, a long story short, uh, after I became a citizen, I was able to live here in Japan without having, um, you know, a visa. So I was able to quit my job and start a company. And the first company, uh, kind of, you know, the, you should fail fast and fail hard. And uh, uh, the first project that I was part of, um, you know, wasn't really a success uh, with me as part of it. So. So I left that, and then uh, I found a new team, and I created this company, Sorimitsu, which we actually just celebrated our third-year anniversary last week. Um, so we, we've gone through a lot in the last three years, but what we're most well-known for is a, a blockchain platform called Hyperledger Iroha. So this is an open-source blockchain platform. Uh, so when people think about Hyperledger, they usually think about Fabric, which is one of the five platforms. So there's actually five different blockchain platforms in Hyperledger. Um, you know, Fabric, Sawtooth, Iterha, uh, Burrow, and Indy. 
and we created the third one, Iroha. Um, so uh, that's kind of our contributions in the world of open source. And we use Iroha for a few different uh, platforms. So our main theme is the idea of uh, creating a digital identity using blockchain and doing digital asset management on top of this. So the idea is that, uh, you know, your, your digital property is, you know, it's yours by natural right, like the same as any other property that you have. And no one should be able to take that away from you. And um, unfortunately, <clears throat> a lot of people in countries, they don't have uh, access to things like you know, banking systems where you, know, you have some safekeepers that can uh, take care of your assets and, uh, and hold them for you. So, <clears throat> so really using blockchain technology, it's, it's a way to, to digitize a lot of the assets and value that people have. <clears throat> So we, we started uh, you know, using Iroha for different applications. Uh, two years ago, uh, the National Bank of Cambodia approached us and asked us to work on um, a settlement system for the country. And oh, cool. that's one of the projects that we are, are working on. It's actually a really so cool project. So how, how would they utilize blockchain technology? I'm sure they're not touching the actual assets of cryptocurrencies, but they're more so probably using it for the open source ledgers, for tracking in and out uh, transactions, things to that effect. Well, actually, the National Bank uh, wants to digitize fiat. So, um, <clears throat> you know, so digitize, but not crypto, right? Like they want to make a digital currency, not a cryptocurrency. There's a difference. Yeah, that's exactly right. They want to create a digital currency that they control um, because you know they are a central bank and they already have a currency that they control. Um, but uh, you know, they have physical money in their vaults and uh, you can create a hundred percent reserved currency based on this so that's kind of what uh what that project is about and the cool thing is you know we can um we can put this digital money on someone's phone and then they can you know use it just like you would use bitcoin or any other uh you know cryptocurrency um but the, the really cool thing is that even though the infrastructure is centralized, so it's using a private permission blockchain that the central bank controls by itself, um, the actual business logic is decentralized. So, uh, like, for example, the user's key is, put on, is generated on the phone and it never leaves the phone. And so um, even the central bank can't fake a transaction that someone does. So it's a way to kind of you know, move things in the right direction where we're creating more decentralized infrastructure for global finance. Would, would customers still have the same securities as they would if somebody were to access my, my funds and move them? Would I be able to do like a chargeback or would companies have to worry about double spends in a sense? Uh, so that's a very uh, good question. Um, so different use cases like this are still under consideration. Um, it's best to have the simplest possible, you know, thing that, that you can do. And uh, business rules like chargebacks really complicate a lot of logic. Like there's a lot of use cases that you can't do with chargebacks. And in Cambodia, the whole infrastructure is not really made for, uh, you know, digital money uh, type of system. Or, or yeah, they're not going to wait three days for the funds to clear. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really like a cash-based society. Like people will, will will get like a box of you know cash in order to go buy a, a car or a house. 
um, it's, it's just really different from what we're used to. So you've um, worked on a lot of open source software. Have you ever considered like the fact that companies could just steal this because it's open source, try to tweak one thing in-house and patent it, and now it's centralized? And I, like, I think about this a lot when we see a lot of these protocols come out and it's all open source. And I don't worry about other open source projects stealing it. Like, you know, oh, uh, Litecoin's implementing private sends and they're stealing some of that from Monero or whatever. Whatever, that's that's the free market. But then I worry about the centralized market coming in and taking over some of these open source codes, protocols, and patenting them, and then you know trying to enforce their regulations accordingly. Well, I I, I wouldn't say that the patents are the most uh, the biggest fear. The biggest fear is that um, it's much easier to create a better user experience in a centralized system, and so. Uh, just being crowded out of the market is, is a real risk that a lot of decentralized projects have. Um, uh, but I think that's short-term short risk and not a long-term risk, because long-term, I think we're going to have solutions that are good for a lot of the user interface problems. So, like, for example, some of what we're doing in Cambodia, um, it's not acceptable if you lose your phone, uh, you know, to lose your assets. So there has to be ways to recover um, you know your assets in that case and that's where banks can come in as intermediaries where they can you know take a look at someone's identity confirm it and they can actually switch the keys out it's a multi-signature um, account and they're able to, to do some modification of the, the key pairs associated um, with some assets but only under very strictly controlled conditions hmm. um so that's that's one of the the and I, th I would say interesting and impactful projects that we're doing because this can have a real impact on, on a lot of people's lives. Um, another really interesting project that we're doing that goes along the same theme of, you know, controlling my own, you know, assets myself, um, is a project called D3. And D3 is a decentralized digital depository, and there's a cool website for it, uh, d3ledger.com. Um, but this is a project actually that started uh, two years ago by people um, at, uh, at the National Settlement Depository of Russia, uh, which is part of the Moscow Exchange Group. Um, and uh, they did you know, the first test. And then after the first year, they came to us and they said, you know, we want to make this production system. We want to build it on, on Ederhawk. Can you help us? Uh, so we, we started working with them a little bit more than a year ago on, uh, on creating this, this production platform. And, um, in D3, you use Ederhawk as a, a private ledger. And then because most assets are not on this ledger, they're on like Ethereum or Bitcoin, um, we actually build a bridge. So it's a two-way peg uh, between you know, Bitcoin and, and D3 and Ethereum and D3. And, uh, and we actually did a test with real money. Um, there's a, a, some investment fund called Ad Capital that uh, you know moved money into the system and then did some settlement uh, between the So users. what would be some of the benefits of using a, a gateway or a bridge like that rather than just maybe you know an atomic swap of some sort when it's built a protocol? Well, um, the, the idea really is to make um, a system where you can move assets between different chains. Uh, there's several reasons why this is you know nice. Um, one is, Technology changes every few, few months. And so if you, let's say you do some ICO or something, you create a new token on Ethereum, let's say, God forbid, that you know, EOS takes over the world and, uh, and no one uses it. <laughs> uh, 
So in that case, you could actually move the asset from uh, you know Ethereum onto you know the other chain. Um, but it's it's really about you know being flexible with the technology and. Uh, in D3, because it's a private permission measure, settlement times are very quick. Um, you don't have to pay, you know, transaction fees and gas and things like that. Mm. Um, it can be it can be useful for many circumstances. Also, the main use case that D3 started as was as a, a, a custodial depository. So you can take your assets from Ethereum or Bitcoin. And you can move it on to D3, and once you do that, um, it's not one party, but it's you know this whole system that uh, that manages your assets. So to withdraw the money, you have to get um, you know many different parties to sign off on it. Uh, you know the validators in the system, so it's very hard to hack this system. And all the validators are really licensed financial institutions. So um, the pilot that we did in, in October was you know run by Moscow Exchange Group and KDD, which is the CSD in Slovenia, and Lika, which is a, a crypto exchange. In so does D three act as a, a DAO in a sense, like as a custodial for private keys, yeah. or, or is there still like a human element in the back end? Um, yeah, there's uh, there's still uh, a human element such that um, the D three platform itself is just technology. They don't deal with any clients uh, directly. So, you know, client service providers like a crypto exchange or custody service, they use this as a technological layer to provide these services to, to the users. Um, and, uh, and you can even use this for things like token issuance. So for things like STOs, this is really a perfect platform because um, it doesn't make sense to do security token offering on, you know, a completely public ledger because there's so many constrictions, restrictions that you have, um, you know, with especially American security law that it doesn't make sense to, to do completely open system. Yeah, so by no, having, if you have to follow the regulations, you're definitely going to want to go that route. But if, I mean, if you don't care, you don't have to go that route. <laughs> but I see well, what you're saying. You got to You got to make sure that you're not, you know, releasing tokens to, you know, U.S. addresses and stuff like that. But what are your thoughts on the future of STOs then in this space? Because I feel like the ICO market, it, it's it's over and the institutional investors want exactly what STOs are offering. But is it too little too late? What are your thoughts on the future of the security token market? Um, so uh, in theory, STOs are very nice because they solve the two main, the two main problems of ICOs. Um, one is the lack of regulatory certainty or clarity. And the other is the lack of accountability <clears throat> because you have some you know, legal entity that's doing the issuance. I'm sorry to cut um, you off. The audience said that your microphone is a little glitchy i can kind of hear it a little bit do you have a, a different microphone you might be able to use maybe i'm just too far from it is that better might be might be sorry guys <laughs> they're so picky i'll try to uh to, to not be uh here maybe i'll, I'll kind of move down uh closer. But, yeah uh, no i can hear it it's just a little like gain i can hear the high pitch little clicks i don't know how to combat that everybody I, I don't know what that would be, but uh, is that better? It's all right. I mean, it's not it's not that bad. I I didn't I hardly noticed it until I saw a few people say something. Get over it, Z, Z Daddy. <laughs> Sorry about that. So um, 
So as you were saying, the future of the STOs. So uh, STOs really solve the two main problems of ICOs, uh, one of which is, um, you know, the lack of regulatory clarity and then the lack of accountability. And so in theory, STOs could be quite successful um, in the long term. Uh, but one, one problem with practice is really the lack of, uh, you know, liquidity um, caused by, you know, small trading volumes. So uh without without an easier way to allow more people to come in and, and trade it's really hard to get a lot of uh you know regular retail volume um that doesn't mean that you won't have institutions come in and buy assets so this could be useful for banks for example <laughs> to do things like uh you know credit default swaps or uh different types of derivatives uh and trading but for retail uh, to get into investing in, in in new decentralized applications, it's really I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about the efficacy of it. Um, for that, in that case, you're you're probably better off uh, doing something in you know a country with less restrictive uh, guidance, such as Switzerland or Singapore. Um, would be my thoughts. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. So we're actually talking to some <clears throat> companies. Uh, one cool up and coming project is called uh, Liquidity Digital. And uh, they're doing some interesting things with uh, trying to, you know, I guess they, they don't call them uh, STOs, but rather uh, digital microsecurity offerings and different things like that. Um, mm. Well, even New York Stock Exchange has said they're going to be starting to look into blockchain to tokenize their assets so they could trade more frequently. I guess that they're looking at trading 24-7 rather than having the downtime. And I think that they're also considering fractional uh, stocks like pegged to Bitcoins, pairing the Bitcoin. So you can get like an eighth of a Facebook stock if you're trading in and out of Bitcoin, stuff like that. It's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, this can help a lot with uh, liquidity of yeah. assets, and um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's an obvious uh, use case and direction for the technology. The question is, um, will it really benefit uh, you know decentralized platforms, or will everything be centralized uh, in one platform or not? So, um, a platform like D three would be really great for um, for stock exchange to do issuance like this because then. Uh, you have many partners that are international and, and across you know regions, and you don't have to worry as much about. Um... Well, what would that process be like, right? Now, if a company wanted to go through the process of using D three to tokenize their securities, like their traditional securities that already exist, right? Like they're already being publicly traded. What would that process be like? Uh, well, you would have a broker that that has to do the issuance uh, because it is you know. I mean, it, it depends a little bit on the jurisdiction uh, that you're doing, but uh, typically you'd have a broker that would, uh, you know, take the, the the stocks that you have now and then, you know, it would issue a new type of security or derivative based on, on these. Um, and uh, to, to actually tokenize, you know, some existing security like a stock uh, might be... I don't know how straightforward that would be because there's other things associated with that, like for example, voting rights or things like that. Um, but you can you can more easily tokenize things like a revenue stream uh, or even just maybe some dividends that you would get. Um, but to get the full 
no corporate actions uh, is kind of a little bit of a longer road. Mm. I'm, I'm skeptical it can be done very easily. I think the dividend model is going to be real important to the security token success. I think a lot of retail investors are going to look for an incentive for storing their dollar in X, Y, and Z location rather than lending it out for margin trading, which is going to be amazingly super convenient soon. Um, a lot of people are going to be able to make more interest off of just lending their Bitcoin rather than putting things in other places. But I think a lot of these companies, especially like the big corporations right now, the monopolies are going to want to find a way to get that vo that volume in from the retail investor side, like the people that can't afford one Facebook stock because they don't have that, but they can afford one fifth or an eighth or a tenth of a Facebook stock. And that's going to add a lot of value to their to their market cap so they're incentivized to incentivize us with these you know dividends in the form of i think would be like utility tokens but uh i don't know what your thoughts are on on utility tokens being related to the security tokens issuance um well i i'm a bit, bit skeptical as to whether the u.s sec even um you know considers utility tokens to be a thing but um uh <laughs> well i mean like it, it really wouldn't matter if they don't exist in the future right like there's a lot of things happening at quick pace right now there's an exponential s curve of of you know social growth when we're looking at things from like you know even from gay marriage to cannabis uh legalization and and stuff and everything else that's been happening so fast recently i just maybe that it's it's not too far-fetched to think that you know by the ease of being able to go against like you know prohibition doesn't exist because it was just too easy to consume alcohol it's too easy you know it's 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 not as easy to enforce the regulations so they just get processed out of elimination right so i think the ease of this technology's use where a five-year-old is going to be able to do a security token for their lemonade stand and have a utility <laughs> token you know for their lemonade so if you if you invest in my lemonade stand you get a utility token it gets you free lemonade if you like it's going to be so easy for these kids to do this they're not going to be able to enforce anything. They're going to be a joke. So why will the SEC even exist when they're going to be going after more five-year-olds on playgrounds than, you know, anybody else? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think that long term, you'll have some regulatory clarity similar to what uh, is, exists in Switzerland. Well, with, regulatory uh, clarity is not the same as regulatory enforce, right? They can't enforce it. It's impossible. I could create a DAO and just say, hey, look what I found. I don't have to say I created it. It could just be anonymous. And like, hey, look at this thing I found. I like it a lot. Nobody found it before. And now I look like the founder, but I'm not. I just discovered it. I'm the discoverer. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that is true. But uh, I mean, for a lot of use cases, though, you don't want to do it completely anonymously. Um, uh, yeah, but, I mean, uh, well, again, decentralization yeah. is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a superpower and a weakness. It, it is it is interesting. That's why Bitcoin is where it's at now. I mean, I feel like if if Bitcoin had some form of like where, you know, what Litecoin had with uh, Charlie Lee, we wouldn't be having this, you know, slacker right now moment where we would already probably be working on this. Uh, we'd have rootstock already ready to go. We'd have atomic swaps and lightning channels would probably be more established. But 
Now we Maybe have 34 the, forks. Would be better too. We have um, so many forks. <laughs> What's the environment like in Japan, though, for cryptocurrencies? I mean, like, from my perspective, reading articles that seem like they might just be freaking clickbait, every store in Japan seems to be accepting Bitcoin. The Best Buy of Japan accepts Bitcoin. The Walmart of Best Buy accepts Bitcoin. Every convenience store, you know, and I'm like, really, though? So I'm just curious, is, is this as common as like the mainstream media projects it to be in, in Japan? Like, is Bitcoin as common as every other payment method? Uh, uh, short answer is no. Um, That's what I thought. But uh, <laughs> actually, actually, I don't I don't spend a lot of time in Japan nowadays. Uh, I travel a lot for business and, um, you know, in Europe. Where have you especially. been traveling? Oh, you well, Europe, you just said. Europe, and I also end up going to Cambodia uh, once a month uh, for business. But, um, um, but uh, anyway, so in, in Japan, I think that um, there's a lot of excitement early on about cryptocurrencies. So for some reason, you know, everything has been, you know, Japan's been the focal point of all of this for a long time. There's, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, Japanese name. Uh, Mark Cox was here. You had people like Roger Ver, Love. The thought leaders were were here for a while, um, but uh, but then after some of the hacks, you know, first Mt. Gox and then CoinCheck, and um, it, it really kind of uh, put a, a freeze on a lot of, uh, I guess, the excitement about things. And um, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of you know, crypto wasn't used as a payment method here. It's more just a form of speculation. So there are some stores that take it, but it's really, uh, really rare. Um, well, Bitcoin has of... that very unique problem where nobody wants to spend it because they keep thinking it's going to keep going up. And then when it goes down, they think it'll bounce back up. So there's like no, nobody ever wants to spend Bitcoin. They just, they want to make more fiat from it. And that's about it. But if they spended it and used it, they would have more of it. It would go up. Yeah, that's a great uh, segue into uh, what I wanted to talk about tonight, uh, which is, uh, yeah, one of the reasons is because Bitcoin is, uh, you know, it's really a deflationary economy. And um, there's, there's, there's a lot of economic, uh, I guess, structural problems in, in the Bitcoin economy. So Bitcoin is very interesting. And as a payment system that's unstoppable, it's it's quite uh, profound. And maybe even as a store of value, it's interesting because it is long-term deflationary. So maybe um, maybe if there's some fundamental value there that can can you know keep the value over time or even go up. Um, but uh, it's not really an economic system. Uh, you need to have some kind of rational economic model or monetary policy in order to uh, to have. Um, you know, really something that people can use in their, in their daily life as you know, money or moneyness. Um, so that's what we're trying to solve with, with Sora. So, uh, so Sora means sky. And our idea really is just like, you know, the sky covers the whole world and everywhere you go, you can see the sky. We want to create the same type of um, kind of world economic system. Um, so our, our motto right now is one world, one economy. Um, and uh, the idea is that we create a, what I call a decentralized autonomous economy. It's kind of like a DAO, but uh, whereas the DAO was an investment fund where people invest money and speculate on different investments, um, this is actually a, a token that you, you decentralize the decision-making 
part of uh, the creation of. So, um, so there's a you don't want infinite inflation. I mean, like run, totally un, unbounded inflation. Instead, uh, what you want is every year, you know, some constant amount of inflation that's predictable. And so within that, uh, you know, amount of inflation that you can have, so, so the new tokens that you are creating, you want to create these tokens as much as possible for productive use. So productive from a GDP standpoint. So uh, creation of new goods or services is the, is the short answer. Um, now, this is something that central banks already do in, in managing a lot of the economies. Um, but you don't want to centralize this decision. There's a great moral hazard in that. Um, instead, our idea is you decentralize it. And so you decentralize it by giving, giving everyone voting rights uh, to create just a, a small amount of the, of, of the tokens that you can create every year. So like an example would be if we can create 500 tokens, um, you know, I would have like uh, 200 votes. So I can, I can create 200 tokens, you would have 300. So the two of us can you know, together decide how do we create these 500 tokens? Um, what projects do we give them to? So, so the idea is we just have many people pr uh, propose goods and services, uh, and then people vote on, you know, oh, this good or new, new type of good will get 300 um, tokens. Let's vote to create these 300 tokens and give them to this project. Um, <clears throat> now, what would that project do with those tokens, though? Like, I'm just curious, what's the use case for them or the utility of that token? Where does, where does, why would I want that token? What, what can I do with it as, as a developer or as an employee for this DAO? Okay, so there's, there's two answers depending on the time scale. Uh, obviously, from a long-term standpoint, we would say that, you know, you have a nice economy, and you can use the tokens to, to you know pay your employees to build something or to buy some raw materials um but in the short term you obviously need some kind of fiat currency most people don't work for magic internet money um some people do which is nice uh but so what you have to do you know you would take this allocation of tokens and then you know sell it sell it you know to some in some secondary market uh, possibly uh to raise fiat currency that you would then build something. Um, but uh, we, we do have some examples of, uh, of projects that are already, um, you know, starting to build things uh, even before we've launched. Um, so one of the projects is uh, Vintero. This is a wine company. So um, it's, it's actually a very, <coughs> very nice story. Um, well, I mean, wine is something tangible and it's something that a lot of us can, you know, relate to or drink. Um, uh, but well, yeah, I this, mean, even in a bear market or a depression, alcohol is one of the most profitable investments you'd make. <laughs> but um, here, like the idea is you take uh, organic California grown uh, Pinot Noir grapes and they're handpicked under the full moon. Uh, so they did this back in last October. And then, uh, you know, they, they fermented the wine and it's, it's actually sparkling wine. So it's, it's, it's not a traditional method. It's a modern method using modern technologies, forced carbonated. Um, they actually uh, create 5,000 bottles and the 6,000 cans. So the cans are like, you're, you're, are they tokenized? Well, the <laughs> They're not tokenized. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> 
Um, but they're like Red Bull cans, right? But with sparkling uh, red wine in it. Um, but the cool thing is, like, this is, uh, yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, next time for your future show, we'll have to give you some wine. Oh, um, definitely. Maybe, uh, actually, when the wine goes on sale, I think we should uh, do this again with the, uh, with the guys. So Would I be the, able the to buy it with crypto? Yeah, so, so that's the thing. So the way that it contributes to the Sora economy is that you, you can use the XOR. Well, our currency is called, or token is called XOR. You can use XOR to buy uh, the wine uh, at you know discount compared to fiat. That's uh, the incentive right there. Okay. So that's the that's the idea, um, and this is just a simple example. But you know, let's say you have ten thousand projects like this. You know, ten thousand new products that are being built, and uh, you can you can see that there's a lot of potential. Just uh, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, so every day Bitcoin is mining about ten million dollars worth of new Bitcoin, giving it uh, giving it only to miners. So our idea is, you know. Instead of giving it to just one part, one asset or actor in the economy, instead you should give it, you know, to create new goods and services. So if Bitcoin was actually giving all the new Bitcoins to like stores who, who accepted Bitcoin or to people farmers, that contribute. You know, yeah. Yeah. Like let's say, you know, there's a, a farmer of some grapes or something who, who accepts Bitcoin. And stuff. So that, that's the kind of use case that would really um, give you high growth. That's the, that's that's the theory of what we're doing. So it's called Sora. It's a decentralized autonomous economy, um, a DAE as we call it. Um, I, I dig it. I mean, I, I I can see the concept. It's almost like working for a temp agency that has all the businesses that go through the temp agency, uh, basically have like a in-house credit system that you know you, you, they pay in. And this sort of happens in a traditional sense right now with like Amazon gift cards. A lot of companies have these developers that are willing to work for Amazon gift cards because it's easier for companies in the U.S. and other countries to pay people in Amazon gift cards rather than use fiat exchanges and currency exchanges and wire transfers for like 20 bucks. I mean, that's all you really got paid this week. So is it really worth it? So there are other, you know, companies that already do this in a centralized means, but they're they're using, like I said, Amazon gift cards and shit like that. And people would argue, oh, what about all the steps it would take? Like, how do, how do I pay my rent out of this economy's token? Well, Binance uh, employees, I think... Uh... CZ tweeted that a majority of the employees accept at least part of their salary in, in BNB tokens. So well, they made ten percent um, this month. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a good deal. I would I, I wish I was paid in BNB tokens. But um. well, it depends on the tax scenario, right? I would I, I don't like that whole first in first out scenario at all. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you bought your first Bitcoin at a hundred bucks and you sold it at twenty thousand, but you bought a Bitcoin at nineteen thousand the day before. They're going to take into consideration the gains from the $100 Bitcoin up. And I, would, I never, that's the private key I still held. I never actually even moved that Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> but first yeah. in, first out. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, room for I don't know, regulatory improvements uh, in the space. Um, but uh, it's, no, things have been coming together pretty well, I think. Um, a lot of, companies have been building a lot of things we uh, you know we haven't stopped building things well we were never really part of uh you know the cryptocurrency boom uh we were always you know doing enterprise work and and really our foray into tokenomics with 
Sora is really our first uh, first thing that we're doing with a you know public type of token. So who's um, Sora's end user, right? Like who are you marketing towards right now for Sora.org as your demo? Like who would be the perfect customer for you guys? Like let them know who you are and <coughs> why you're the option that they need. Well, there's many types of actors that are needed in, in an economy. So there's producers and then consumers, and then you need people to actually, you know, install the app that we're creating uh, to, to do the voting of how do you uh, distribute the newly created uh, tokens. So um, it's, it's really like all these different people together should, should build this. So that, that's part of the hard thing uh, about, you know, marketing a project like this, because um, a lot of it's heavy on the on the theory, and people don't a people don't understand economics, and then b um, most people in this space just really want to make money fast. And if they don't have like people don't even read articles, they just look at headlines, and they <laughs> go buy a token or something, right? So um, it's really it, it's really hard to know like how much should we actually target you know tr traditional crypto communities versus like trying to target the mainstream. Our that our basic sense. Well, our basic model is, you know, we, we have all these projects like Binchero and, uh, well, D3 is actually one of the projects that um, is, is planned to, to raise some of the funding uh, on this platform. And uh, uh, the idea really is that all these different projects who get a, a token allocation, they, they should go out and, you know, help, <laughs> like do their own marketing for their own service. And then we'll have like a secondary benefit from, from that as a whole. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of the idea, and uh, I think it's a really simple idea. I'm surprised uh, no one's done it before, but up until now, people have really just been focusing on investments and really what, you know, are really traditional securities, like like the original DAO. Um, but uh, we're like, no, we, we don't want to go after the money game. We want to actually create a real economy that uh, that you would want to live in. So you, you wouldn't want to live in a, in a you know, a, an economy that's always deflationary. You want to live in an economy where you get new tokens created, but but for productive uses. So you get something new from it, you know, and then that expands the economic pie. And um, in in theory, it should uh, should work out splendidly. Um, yeah, but then we have human element, right? Everything's great on paper until you add people. Uh, and that's where I would start to worry about the actually uh, participation in voting, right? And then you have the incentive to vote on others' behalfs. And it starts to get real, like, weird when you think about it. You know, I, I, when I think about, like, um, like even masternodes and things like that, or even how Steam and things have, like, the, the ability to vote, there's so many ways to game that by incentivizing people to vote for you, and you'd be able to reward them with something X, Y, and Z in behalf of that. And because of the open source ledger, you can track the people that have actually participated in your vote, so you can reward them. So there's, there's just... I don't know. I see a lot of ways that decentralizing through voting is actually also creating a means of centralization through incentive through without, you know, without creating a secondary market. It's actually in the ecosystem itself. Yeah, so that that's a, a fair point. Um, I should point out that a few decades ago, Milton Friedman uh, you know, basically said that you know, computer programs should run the economy. Um, and I think in the future, you'll be able to have uh, machine learning algorithms that could do much better at making decisions than, than people. 
But until then, um, it's it's important to kind of, you know, decentralize at least uh, some of the voting rights. So we kind of try to solve the problem that you just mentioned by uh, giving people. Uh, it's it's not one person one vote. It's it's a it's a voting system where different people get different votes, and the votes that you get are based on reputation. <clears throat> so, and the reputation is calculated by mainly uh, how well the success of the projects that you vote for. So, if you vote for a project uh, and you know give it you know an allocation of newly created tokens, and the project does fabulously well, uh, then your reputation should go up and you should get more votes in the future. What's the catalyst for a project doing well or not? So, yeah, no, that's 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 also a very good question. Um, so uh, there's many ways that you can potentially uh, look at the success of a project. Um, it's, it's hard to do this in a completely decentralized way. Right. So what the strategy that we're doing this now for decentralization is every quarter take a statistically significant sample of people um, from the you know with a you know high enough statistical statistical power from the community and then uh, randomly ask them you know like what their thoughts are on the project so basically give them a survey uh, that and then most people will say you know yeah, it gets out of here I'm not going to answer but uh, but you know we'll we'll ask enough people so that you get enough of a, of a of, a, of an opinion to, to kind of know how does the community see this project? Like, do they even know about the project? If, yeah, you get the crowdsourced information, try to get the consensus of the overall investors. Yeah, that's that's really the best you can do in a completely decentralized way. Um, <clears throat> long term, uh, I, if we, like, let's say we're wildly successful and everyone in the world used uh, this platform, uh, what I envision would be more of like uh, geographically regional hubs where you kind of split things up by regions a little bit more um, obviously everyone uses the same token but uh, the voting rights and the reputation calculation should be a bit more um, uh, regional i wanted to touch on the reputation just a little bit because uh even steam ran into that problem where the reputation becomes sort of like its own central point of failure or like an echo chamber in a sense but i see kind of what you're going with with the, the, the sort of i would say maybe proof of success that like you were going with, with the projects that kind of maybe helps establish the reputation but still a, a larger reputation may be able to uh, censor something, right? So if a company submits a proposal that wants to maybe compete with my project, maybe I'm incentivized to try to vote against it, right? Because I don't want a competition in the ecosystem. How do we prevent monopolies in this environment of like <clears throat> reputation-based voting? <clears throat> well, um, yeah, no, that's that's a, a great question as well. And it's also something that I, I thought about quite a lot. And uh, what's, what's interesting is if you look at a uh, strategy central banks often use in, in guiding the, or have used historically in guiding the creation of, of money. Um, uh, they, they, the ones who are successful <coughs> at it uh, really targeted uh, market segments, like for example, steel industry or car industry. They wouldn't um, necessarily uh, favor one company over another. And um, really that's something that I think will naturally occur uh, you know, just spread over the whole world of users. If you take, if you average everything out, uh, people will, you know, there won't be a, a significant bias. Uh, 
And because it's not a yes or no vote, it's really an allocation. Um, as long as there's enough people in the world who think that your idea is good enough where you deserve an allocation of these new tokens, then people will vote. Um, so there's really, there's really, um, I mean, obviously they, they worry about their own reputation. Is the project going to be successful or not? Um, well, and we also have to worry about the, the lack of employees, right? Like right now there's not many blockchain developers and in an ecosystem like this, I'm sure there will be a piranha fest of trying to grab people to contribute to your projects. Yeah, well, there's still a lot of developers in the world, and a lot of them are, are switching into the blockchain uh, space. Um, so recently, I think, uh, well, for example, Tron is very well known nowadays because they did a, a, like a hackathon competition. And they bought every Ethereum and EOS developer they could. Well, it's a, it's a reasonable um, uh, strategy, but it also has had the effect of expanding uh, the number of uh, developers in this space, um, which is only a good thing because developers um, are very important. They create, you know, they they create everything that we use. So. And there's a huge incentive to become a developer in this space. I think the minimum income is at least six figures a month. At least. <laughs> I'm not sure what, what projects that is uh, in, in the bear market. No, like I, this. I meant like institutional companies, you know, like, you know, uh, oh, okay. yeah, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, you know, these companies institutionally are hungry for you know, knowledgeable blockchain developers. I'm not talking about, you know, like the ICO companies. I meant more in like the traditional, you know, corporate sense that their hiring incentive is huge right now for credible blockchain developers because there aren't many. And then the government also, they're trying to hire some blockchain developers because they don't understand the technology enough to know what is enforceable or not to know what regulations they can or not even create because they don't even know if they can impose them or not i know that uh, finma in switzerland hired many uh, technical people uh to to help you know review a lot of the applications that they're getting and um yeah there's a there's a talent shortage uh all over but um I think not as bad as it was because uh, I, I, maybe I'm seeing the wrong side, but um, it seems more like at the end of 2017, uh, in the big boom, like there's just so much craziness going around that yeah. uh, it was hard to find anyone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I wanted to touch on a little bit about uh, the decentralized economy and uh, maybe bring it a little bit towards the bounty systems that, it, that exist right now. And a lot of people don't approve of these, you know, em, these as a means of employment, right? Like a, for a basic employment business model, because there's a lot of people that would compete for the jobs and they would do work, but they wouldn't get hired. So there's, you know, work being done, but, you know, the more popular uh, contributors are always selected. Like in, when you look at a reward or bounty system, a hundred people can contribute to a bounty but only one person or maybe three people win and there's different payments for each place but 97 people or so just didn't make the cut so their work goes unpaid and this could go on for you know ever so like i'm just curious is this something that you could see being sustainable if we do move more towards this you know digital economy where there aren't as many jobs in the physical world because we have the internet of thing devices basically like, you know the machines at mcdonald's that are the cashier's jobs now do you see a, a way that this could work out or is it something that may just be niche? Maybe this doesn't have to be a blanket economy you know, model. 
Well, um, I, I really hope that projects like Sora can help uh, different corporations and sectors to collaborate more. Um, because my own personal philosophy is that we're already in competition with nature. Um, I mean, I live in Japan uh, a lot of the year, and there's a lot of you know, natural disasters. There's over 100 active volcanoes <laughs> in this country. Um, over 100? <laughs> but um, really, it's... <laughs> How is your anxiety not through the roof right now? <laughs> well, it's... it's we don't have earthquakes every day. I mean, like that you can feel. Um, but uh, but really, I mean, we're we're up against a lot of problems of nature, and uh, and and we should be collaborating more. Um, one of the problems with globalization is that no matter where you are in the world, um, you're actually competing against everyone. Is <laughs> really how it feels. Yeah, that's um, true. Instead of just competing with your local competition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you make, like, let's say you make socks, okay, um, alpaca socks, um, uh, you could you be you could be doing it in the rural countryside and you would be dominating d dominating your local market. But then, oh, Amazon comes and then you can, you know, everyone can buy alpaca socks from anywhere. Um, uh, so it's it's a it's a it's it's something that I think. Um, human societies really need to reorganize around. And um, uh, the idea really about Sora was that, you know, you could you could create new tokens in a way such that uh, there's, you know, you, you could you could fund things that you wouldn't fund normally. Um, well, you know, this is being done traditionally right now in Canada, right? Uh, well, which way do you mean? Uh, they're creating a token. It's a digital currency that the, the, I guess they call it a parliament or providence, the providence of Alberta. They created the Alberta dollar. It's a digital dollar that they give to people that spend money in Alberta. So if you're an employee and you live in a, in a resident in Alberta, to incentivize you to shop locally, they actually give you this token reward as a loyalty point for shopping and spending money back in-house. Because so much money was leaving the providence, it was a drain. There wasn't people spending money in local businesses, local businesses were going down nobody was opening another local business so they had to figure out a, a incentive to keep the uh, employees spending the money in the same city that they live in instead of shopping online and spending the money out and you know globalizing that economy because the the global economy wasn't pouring back in at the same at the same volume so it's really interesting to see that you're doing this considering that there's a fucking country that is also trying to do this but in a centralized means well, we have that in Japan as well. Um, so different localities can create their own uh, local currency. And these are typically in the form of some kind of, you know, like bill or ticket that uh, you can then spend it at certain, like, well, mini local shops. Oh, like um, a coupon, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it gives you some bonus, right? So it's, it's the same type of idea. Um, and again, it's this, you know, wave against, uh, you know, globalized competition. Um, so really what we need is a globalized collaborative scheme uh, where, you know, people, instead of just competing, you know, they're, they're trying to help each other to go up. And um, 
you know, if you have like five different wine companies, I would hope that if you had five different wine companies in the Sora economy, that instead of just competing with each other, that they would help each other build right. up. You're and creating a digital think tank, an incubator in a sense, right? Where people can pick in, you know, kind of help. Like if I'm lacking in one place, I could ask another for help through their, you know, digital economy where they hired X, Y, and Z for that. And I could reach out as well. And I see that, you know, in a lot of places I visited in 2018, as far as like, you know, these incubators go, you see more progress in collaboration than trying to do everything under one umbrella in-house where one company trying to do their uh, supply chain they're trying to do their token issuance they're trying to do the security management and they're so spread thin they can't manage anything at full capacity and the incentive is out there to do a lot of collaboration but uh, again i also think that they're worried a lot about you know the the in-house uh, biasness right like if you worked for this company and you know maybe you work for that wine company and i hire you to work for me you know you might be more incentivized to do a better job for them than you are for me because you're invested in them so you have an incentive for me to fail like that's in everything though there's no way to change that in even any business model like the best way to to destroy something is from the inside says slc punk <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 good to have some competition, but uh, it should be bound bounded. And um, <clears throat> really, I, I think you you still need the profit motive, but it should be you know bounded as well. And well, the profits, reputation based system kind of disincentivizes mm -hmm. bad acting as well. One would hope so. And um, it, actually, in our in our well, our white paper is going to be released uh, fairly shortly. But in that, we talk a lot about uh, the referendum system of governance. So all the parameters of the system really can be changed by referendum. Mm. Um, so the idea is that you know even even if the first you know settings are not maybe a hundred percent, you know, the, or even if the future society changes or the you know we we can still adapt and evolve. And um, my my hope is that it can become really a platform where. Uh, where, where people can really be empowered to create new things, like for example, this wine project uh, or D3 or you know, other types of projects that were uh, that are in the pipeline. Um, yeah, there's actually a lot of really cool projects that uh, I can't all talk about today, but um, uh, maybe in the future we can get some of the guys on on here to talk and. Uh, yeah, you have um, the link, man. I'm, I'm, my podcast is pretty open source. Anybody can come on. I don't charge anybody anything, and everybody's welcome. I enjoy talking to anybody and everybody, man. I really do. And, and like this, this concept of a decentralized economy, man, is something I've always thought about. But like I've mentioned, some of like my tinfoil hat theories that worry me about it. But then again, that's nothing that can be done even in the traditional industries. There, it's just it, it, every every. Uh, I would say every evolution has its, you know, yin and yang, give and take, and you have to outweigh the risk reward to it. And like you were mentioning with the the problems that a global economy does provide, we've seen the, the risk outweigh the reward. And we have to start to figure out how do we balance those scales by incentivizing the, the you know, keeping things more locally as well as globalizing. And it's, it's difficult. Yeah, well, I think that uh, this is a way for normal people to make a lot of decisions uh, about, you know, how new tokens are created. And so this can help, I guess, 
in a way pricing a lot of externalities like things like environmental degradation that uh, that normal companies don't consider uh, in their business model because they're not you know they're not part of the profit equation um but you know if you live in some place you, you sure <laughs> you definitely care about uh environmental degradation so we ha we have to be careful because you know in, in a few decades uh, there'll, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish um if we don't change the the course so it's uh, uh, i think we're at the irreparable damage state man i don't know how how much we can do i, I watched a documentary on um uh, the river Gandhi, I think it was in India and Ganges River. Ganges River. Oh shit, bro! My fucking heart breaks for that river, dude. So <laughs> broken. Four billion dollars spent, and not a damn drop of water has been filtered, cleaned. <laughs> not a nothing. I'm just. It breaks my heart. And then you see the thing in the ocean. Like, what do they call it? The seventh continent or something like that. It's like the size the of Australia. Yeah. That's another one that scares the crap out of me. And they do a twice, they do a deep dive, and they look under, and there's fish eating the plastic, and then there's bigger fish eating the fish that ate the plastic. I don't know, man. I don't even eat seafood anymore, man, at all. You might as well mm. chew on a thermometer if you're gonna have a fish stick. What are, your, what are your thoughts on buying products online with crypto? And I would try to tie this into that uh, decentralized economy, right? With the, the wine company that you have. What would be that you know incentive for buying products online with crypto as opposed to maybe buying those products online with uh, Visa or other means? Okay, so in Sora, we put a lot of thought into this uh, because you know we wanted to create a lot of goods and products. So the wine, of course, will be something that you can buy online. Um, you know, with, with XR, the currency, or the, the token we're building. Um, it's not really a currency, it's more of a utility token. But uh, uh, in, in this case, uh, the, the benefit of using the token would be that you can get some, some cash back, kind of. So we would, like that type of scheme. So what we have is 1% uh, of the, the tokens that are created, they go to different stores that accept XOR, and then one percent are given to people who shop at those stores. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like you know. Well, I mean, American Express has the same business model, right? If I have like their American Express Club card and I use them, I'm incentivized to use that card because I get a kickback. Yeah, the kickback scheme is the the only really logical way that. Uh, that I could think of. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I guess uh, the kickback could be larger considering the transaction fee would be significantly lower. I mean, you know, card payment processors charge three to 5% just to, you know, clear a transaction that the business has to pay for. So they could pass on yeah. half of that savings to the customer easily. Yeah. So I think that uh, it'll make things a little bit cheaper around the world. Um, one, one concern though is you lose I guess some status. Um, so like if you have a cool credit card or something, you can whip it out, put it down and everyone thinks, Maybe. wow, look at that cool guy. Um, well, there's but, some yeah. there's some cool cards and stuff. I have a crypto, uh, I don't have my wallet near me, but I have a couple cool crypto cards and PondyX or PundyX, however you want to say it, they're doing some cool things. I got a Tangem card, it uses like NFC. So if I were to, it could let me do like a tap and pay kind of scenario, but the NFC actually taps to the back of my phone. I put in my pin, then I scan your address and do a send. So my, my NFC card sort of like cold storage. It's It's 
pretty cool. There's a lot of things that I play around with in this space that, like, as you were saying, I could see all being implemented. But, you know, yeah, you would you know have what? that status. You would have that cool status of the card. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I've uh, looked at is QR code payments on mobile because it, it is a pretty easy way to do things, especially with um, some of the standardization with MCO. But um, it's it's hard to really make it cool, you know? <laughs> I think the whole QR code scanning thing is going to be gone before we ever see mass adoption. It has to go straight tap and pay. We just Don't need more Chinese. NFC. <laughs> we need more NFC communications. Uh, these all, every business has a tap and pay terminal. All we have to do is update their software and we can tap our Android device or iOS device. It'll open up one of our Android wallets or iOS wallets and we could interact with, you know, sending cryptocurrencies as conveniently as it would be to tap and pay and use any other form of payment. I think the QR code thing is what's really holding crypto back. I mean, look at it in a traditional sense. Who uses QR codes? It was like the biggest flop in technological advancement. Nobody uses it. Every Everything I buy has a little QR code on the can or on like, you know, whatever. But who scans them? Who uses it? Nobody uses it. Well, in China, they're really quite popular, though. So things like, um, you know, like WeChat Pay and things like that. But um, uh, I think that... It, it, it misses a lot of the cool factor. Nobody's uh, going to scan this and send me Bitcoin. <laughs> Prove me wrong. Is that a real Bitcoin address? <laughs> yeah, this is my Bitcoin address. And so is this. Oh, wow. But you, you seem to like QR codes. Uh. No, that's the problem. Nobody uses them. I need to get the <laughs> NFC chip. So when people tap their phone in my arm, it pre-populates my Bitcoin address text field. Ah, oh, yeah, it's, it's funny you had mentioned that because we actually put a lot of effort into researching a lot of uh, payments uh, from implantable chips. And um, what was actually discoveries? Really, Ooh, this is awesome. It's a really cool company that uh, makes chips that are the size of a grain of sand, like much smaller than like the big. Um, the ones that know, are just like right chips. sized. Well, those have a lithium battery usually and that takes up a lot of the space. Um, but this company in California, they actually use, uh, you know, small quartz crystal or some kind of crystal that uh, is piezoelectric. So it generates power uh, from sound waves, which is quite, quite cool. Um, and there's a, a cool paper that uh, was published. Uh, it's called like Neural Dust or something. Um, and, and that was really... Um, Something that I, th I think that technology in the future could have a lot of potential. I don't know if it's been approved um, for humans or what the status is, but uh, it's something that I, I, I could see being maybe something like that could be cool. Um, that being said, I've talked to people about implantable chips. They get a bit squeamish. Um, uh, but I, I did lots of research and thinking about the topic for about a year. and. Um, my conclusion is that the only safe way um, <clears throat> to do payments without an external device is to implant a chip because um, you don't want to use biometrics like things like eyes or, or fingerprints. Well, that would be your 2FA, right? You would tap with your, your chip exactly, and then yeah. you would put down your fingerprint. And I would imagine by that time, 
and this is a lot of people don't realize this but this is already pretty basic that a lot of fingerprint uh scanners actually check for a pulse to make sure that that thumb wasn't oh, okay. cut off or you aren't dead uh this is like oh the first thing people will say is what if uh, somebody cuts off your thumb well by default every almost every thumbprint scanner even in a banking traditional it's checking for a pulse and it's not going to be far from that technology being implemented to your mobile device so your phone wants to make sure that you can tap that nfc chip then put down your fingerprint to make sure that you can send that transaction mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's exactly right um yeah, <clears throat> well, any kind of biometric could be thought of as something like a username, not a, not a password. Um, I, on Apple's website, I was looking at the other day, it said that your face is your password or something like that. And it, it, it's not, you, you don't want to use um, any kind of biometric as a password. Um, but that, some stuff like that could kind of have the cool factor because it is... Uh, it's new and um, actually implanting a chip uh, could be really quite useful for things other than payments as well. Um, imagine doing like a virus scan every time you pay like to see like, do you have malaria? Do you have AIDS? Like different things like that. Um, if you have, if you have something inside the body, it could, it could potentially be uh, overloaded to do other tasks than just... Um, well, what about you know, having malware installed, uh, going to a doorknob? <laughs> you go to a doorknob, you touch the doorknob, and it installed malware onto your NFC. Uh, that's like one of the things, again, with my tinfoil hat just scares the crap out of me about. But, I mean, it's something that I've considered after speaking to Brock Pierce. We were talking about the uh, the implants. And the first thing he kind of brought up was like, yeah, but what, you know, you're going to get a virus in your NFC chip. And you're going to spread that to your house when you start to unlock your door. And then when you unlock your computer. And, you know, it's going to be because these, like, I have a hardware wallet. This hardware wallet, I have tons of hardware wallets, but they all need updates every month because of, you know, exploits. So I'm going to have to update my chip or physically update the actual hardware XYZ amount of times a year because of bad actors. So, I mean, how, how likely is it ever to be something? You know what I mean? Like, what is the likelihood? Well, I mean, uh, maybe you need something more resilient like what the body has because your body already is fairly resilient to things like viruses um but you still get sick occasionally um that's Ooh, another thing that i think we really have to do antivirus <laughs> well one thing i think we have to come together as humanity and work on is you know improving um improving our design not just the design of technology uh, mm -hmm. there's a lot of bugs in our in our programming uh and i mean genetic programming that i think you know, people are, are, get squeamish thinking about it, but it's it's really the logical uh, conclusion. Um, in, in Zen, uh, there's a saying, if you see a weed, pick it, and uh, you shouldn't be afraid about uh, fixing things that are broken. Damn, and that is actually a good note to end on, bro, bro. Why don't you let everybody know where they can find you on the internet and a little elevator pitch about what you're doing with Sora.org. Okay, so you can find us on Sora.org. Uh, we have a telegram chat, sora.org slash chat. Um, sora is S-O-R-R-A. And we're a decentralized autonomous economy. We want to put the power of creation of new tokens into your hands and uh, use it for good. Yeah, guys, stop buying crypto and start earning crypto and contribute to the economy. Check out Sora.org. Let me know what you think in the comments below, and let's start a public conversation about Sora.org. And uh, don't forget to pound that thumbs up button, click subscribe, flick the alert bell, and have a day.
Thanks.